You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. Empire was massive. At its height in the first and second centuries, it covered most of Europe, Britain, North Africa, the Mediterranean, and the Middle East. In order to keep order in the various provinces, local authorities had to be set up to establish and keep the peace and enforce the rule of law. In the more important and strategic areas of the empire, like, for instance, the province of Egypt, These posts were held by very high-ranking officials. In some of the less important areas, like, for instance, Judea, they were presided over by prefects. Administrators from the lower-ranking equestrian class, who were military men and were expected to keep and maintain the peace in the area through the use of Rome's military might. The most famous of these Judean prefects, of course, is Pontius Pilate. I will assume most of you are rather familiar with Pilate's role during the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, and so we'll just focus briefly on some other aspects of his tenure in Judea that helped set the stage for the revolt in AD 70. Pilate became prefect of Judea in AD 26, and his career is one marked by numerous incidents that showed incredible insensitivity toward the Jewish culture and religion. The very first thing he does upon his appointment brings about near insurrection. Here is Josephus's account from his book, The Jewish Antiquities. Quote, Pilate, having been sent by Tiberius, moved his troops from Caesarea to winter quarters in Jerusalem. But by night, he brought into the city busts of the emperor that were attached to the military standards when our law forbids the making of images. For this reason, the previous procurators used standards that had no such ornaments. The next morning, the Jews were indignant and hurried to Pilate in Caesarea, imploring him to remove the images. When he refused, deeming it an insult to the emperor, they prostrated themselves around the palace for five days and nights. On the sixth, Pilate took his seat on the tribunal in the stadium, and when the Jews again pleaded, he gave a signal. The people were suddenly surrounded with a ring of troops three deep, their swords drawn, and Pilate threatened death if they did not stop the tumult. But they bared their necks, declaring that they would rather die than transgress the laws. Astounded at such religious zeal, Pilate immediately transferred the images from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now, you would think that after such an extreme display of religious zeal, that Pilate would have learned his lesson. But he did not. Philo, another Jewish writer, describes a similar incident where Pilate set up gold-coated shields in the palace in Jerusalem that were technically there to honor the emperor. But Philo says that they were, quote, not so much to honor Tiberius 
as to annoy the multitude, unquote. So when he refused to remove them, the people wrote directly to Tiberius, and apparently Tiberius wrote to Pilate and scolded him for his violation of precedent, since those in Pilate's position before him allowed many concessions for the Jewish religious cult, which, for the most part, were not allowed in most other areas of the empire. Even this, though, does not reform Pilate in his ways. Soon after, he will take money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct, which the people are not pleased with. Anticipating a riot, Pilate ordered his troops to disguise themselves as civilians and mingle with the crowds, and then on his command, they began to club those who were protesting. Many were killed from the blows uh, and as well from being trampled by the confused crowds. And it wasn't just the Jerusalem Jews who were the target of Pilate's ire. During Pilate's time, what Josephus describes as a Samaritan demagogue persuaded many others to follow him to Gerizim, where he would show them the sacred vessels supposedly deposited there by Moses. But Pilate heard about it, apparently, again, fearing revolt, and he blocked their way with infantry and cavalry, which resulted in a clash of troops. Some were killed, some were scattered, and some were taken prisoner, and Pilate had the ringleader executed. This, like before, ended with the people complaining to one of Pilate's superiors, this time Vitellius, the governor of Syria. Pilate was accused of massacre, and Vitellius ordered him back to Rome to plead his case before the emperor. Before he got there, though, Tiberius died, but the damage was already done, and he was replaced. Philo, writing in the first century, describes Pilate's character as having a vindictiveness and furious temper. And in regard to his governance, he lists these among his greatest assets. His corruption, his acts of insolence, and his habit of insulting people, and his cruelty, and his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending and gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Now, taking all of this into account, it's actually quite remarkable that it's this very same Pilate who is pleading with the people to release Jesus because he can find no fault in him. And yet, at the same time, it is unsurprising that he would eventually relent to their request and have him crucified if it meant subduing an unruly crowd, which seems to have been his highest priority. All of this is taking place about 30 to 40 years prior to Jerusalem's eventual downfall, but this attitude of the people toward Pilate is a stepping stone to even greater feelings of revolt. This is episode 5 of The End of the Age, Sparks of Rebellion. After the death of Tiberius, Emperor Gaius, or otherwise known as Caligula, ascended to the throne. 
He would continue where Pilate left off in terms of antagonizing the Jews. Vitellius, the governor of Syria we mentioned earlier, was called back to Rome by Caligula to be rewarded for his loyalty with bigger and better appointments. Caligula replaced him with Petronius and ordered him to march into Judea and erect a statue of Caligula inside the temple. On their way to Jerusalem, the army stopped at the city of Ptolemaeus and was met by thousands of Jews who pleaded with Petronius not to erect the statue. The pleas were ignored and the army continued toward Jerusalem. Next, they stopped at the city of Tiberias and were received by another similar crowd. They once again resolved to die rather than see this transgression of the law take place and were even prepared to leave their land untilled. To his credit, Petronius seems to have had sense enough to see how this action would end. Here is how Josephus records his decision. Quote, Struck by their resolve, Petronius decided to risk Gaius's anger rather than drench the country in blood. Convening an assembly of Jews in Tiberias, he told them that he would try to dissuade the emperor from carrying out his plan. And, if he failed, he would endure suffering himself rather than see so many of them destroyed. He told them to resume their agriculture and dismissed the multitude, who invoked many blessings on him. Unquote. Josephus goes on to say that Petronius wrote to Caligula saying that he should revoke his order unless he wanted to destroy both the country and its inhabitants. The request was not met well, and Caligula sent messengers to Petronius with a letter demanding that he commit suicide for his failure to execute the commands of the emperor. However, these messengers were waylaid by a terrible storm, and another group of messengers arrived, first announcing the death of Caligula, thus sparing Petronius's life. To be fair, Caligula's contempt for the Jews was typical of his overall contempt of almost all people. Josephus says he terrorized all classes of citizens and insisted on his own divinity calling Jupiter his own brother. This led to a widespread hatred of his rule and subsequently to at least three different assassination attempts, the third of which was successful. After Caligula's death, his uncle Claudius became emperor. While Claudius was vying for the throne, one of his strongest supporters was Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great. Once Claudius became emperor, he awarded Agrippa the position of king of Judea. And not just Judea, but Samaria and all the lands that Herod the Great ruled over, as well as some others. And so because of the vast territory over which he now ruled, Agrippa began to amass a huge amount of wealth. He spent much of that wealth fortifying the walls of Jerusalem to the point where Claudius forced him to stop suspecting a revolution. This will become significant during the eventual siege 
in AD 70. He was also found to be entertaining the kings of surrounding kingdoms at his court, further leading to speculation on the part of the Romans that the king of Judea was planning a revolt. But in his seventh year as king, Josephus records this event. Quote, Agrippa came to Caesarea to celebrate the games in honor of Caesar. At daybreak, he entered the theater, dressed in a garment of woven silver, which gleamed in the rays of the rising sun. His flatterers started addressing him as a god, but then he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope overhead and was struck with intense pain. I, whom you call a god, he cried, am now under the sentence of death. Five days later, he died at age 54. Unquote. Now, this very event is actually captured by the gospel writer Luke in the book of Acts. This is how he recounts it. Quote, On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Acts 12, 21-23 After Herod Agrippa dies, the emperor once again reduced the area of Judea from a kingdom ruled over by a king back to a province of Rome administered by prefects and procurators. For the next eight years, the province of Judea was in chaos. Fadus, Tiberius Alexander, Cumanus, and Felix all took their turn as procurator, but each was unsuccessful in calming the tension both between the Jews and the Romans, but maybe even more importantly, between Jew and Jew. This is most obvious during the time of Cumanus. At one point during the Passover, a riot broke out. According to Josephus, this is what happened next. Quote, One of his troops, who was standing on the porticos of the temple for riot control, uncovered his genitals and showed them to the multitude. In rage, some of the people started hurling stones at the soldiers, and Cumanus marched reinforcements to the Antonia. This frightened the masses, and in their rush to escape through narrow exits, some 20,000 were trampled to death. So there was mourning instead of feasting." In our last Rabbit Trail episode, we touched briefly on the tension that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. During this time, those tensions were intensified. A group of Samaritans killed some Galileans passing through Samaria on their way to the temple. The Jews turned to Cumanus for help, but he refused, having apparently been bribed by the Samaritan party. The Jews then took it upon themselves and burned down some Samaritan villages. Cumanus then decided to come to the aid of the Samaritans and killed many of the Jews before they were convinced to lay down their arms before it resulted in Rome coming down on the entire nation. Both the Samaritans and the Jews accused the other to Quadratus, 
who was now governor of Syria. Quadratus crucified some of the leading violent rebels from both parties and then sent delegates from each party to Rome to plead their case before Caesar. But he also sent Cumanus. And though not at first, Claudius, the emperor, would eventually side with the Jews and he executed the Samaritan delegation and also sent Cumanus into exile and appointed Felix to the position of procurator. Two years later, in AD 54, Claudius would be poisoned by his own wife so that she could ensure that her son from a previous marriage would become emperor rather than Claudius's own son, Britannicus. This son was Nero. As insurance, Nero would proceed to poison Britannicus, and as a thank you to his mother, he had her openly murdered. It's at this point that Josephus gives what he believes to be the main reason for the war. Quote, In Judea, where matters were going from bad to worse, Felix had to capture impostors and brigands on a daily basis. When the high priest Jonathan continually urged him to improve his administration, Felix hired Sicari, meaning dagger men, basically terrorists, to murder him. When they remained unpunished, the Sicari boldly attacked their enemies with hidden daggers, even in the temple area. This is why, in my opinion, God himself turned away from our city and brought the Romans upon us. Unquote. After Felix, another batch of procurators came to Judea. First there was Festus, then Albinus, and then Florus, who will be the procurator in Judea at the time the war breaks out in AD 66. Albinus was by no means a saint, but this is what Josephus says of his successor, Florus. Quote, Gesius Florus, whom Nero sent as successor to Albinus, made the latter look like a paragon of virtue by comparison. Joining in partnership with the brigands to receive a share of the spoils, he virtually paraded his lawless wickedness before the nation. He stripped whole cities, ruined entire populations, and compelled us to go to war with the Romans. In the next episode, we will pick up right where we left off and look at how the specific actions of men like the procurator Gesius Florus and Caesar Nero fanned these sparks of rebellion into the open flame of revolt and warfare. <laughs>